Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean, and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. The grace and peace of our Lord be with every person gathered here tonight. And I also want to welcome those who are live streaming this service, wherever you may be, and welcome you into this very special time of worship. Tonight, I told you, begins a brand new sermon series. We typically begin new sermon series on Sundays. But I thought it fitting to begin on Ash Wednesday because for the next six weeks, all the way leading up to Easter, we're going to be immersing ourselves in the seven I am statements of Jesus in the Gospel of John. And the reason is very clear. It's very simple. Who he is is everything about who we become. Who he is defines and determines, it shapes everything about who we are and who we are meant to become in him. And I thought it fitting to begin on Ash Wednesday because today begins our 46-day journey to the cross and resurrection of Jesus. The early church, of course, took this as a time of fasting for seven or for 40 days. But it's 46 days, actually, because the early church believed that Sundays were too high a celebration to fast. So you got to, you got to celebrate on Sundays, minus the six Sundays, it's a 40-day journey where we are deliberately in a season of reflection and repentance and renewal. And we ask questions about ourselves and we ask questions of ourselves during this season. Like, what, what am I doing? And who have I become? And where does this whole thing go? Ash Wednesday is about finding the courage to ask the deep questions about where we are in our faith journey. It's almost, it's almost like we gather around a mirror. That's what Ash Wednesday is all about, really. Look at all these good-looking people. It's really like we gather around a mirror and we, we are confronted by our own mortality and our own finitude, our own vulnerabilities. And we choose deliberately during the season of Lent to take a long, hard look at where in the world are we? Up here and in here? And where is this whole thing going? You know, some of you know that I I used to have a little brother. He died at 25. But when we were growing up, we lived in this house that uh, we had a bathroom, uh, one bathroom in this uh, house where we lived. It was inside. (laughs) So it was an upgrade, you know. 
But in the mornings, we'd all get ready in the, in the bathroom. And my brother at times would be standing in front of the mirror, uh, brushing his hair, getting ready, and, and the lights were out. And I'd come in and I'd turn the light on. He said, turn, turn those off. I'm like, you can't see in the dark. And, and he's like, yeah, I know. I look better in the dark. So, and I think about that from time to time because isn't that the truth? We, we prefer how we look to ourselves in the dark. That's why so many of the most self-destructive patterns that we allow into our lives happen in the dark. They grow in the dark. We cultivate them in the dark, in secret, where nobody sees. And we die a little bit on the inside the whole time. But Rod Cooper says that worship is actually like standing in front of a mirror that has lights all around it. You know those mirrors where you, maybe you do your face or something and it's all lit up and, it, and, and it's magnified, right? And, and it reveals every kind of imperfection. It shows every blemish, every wart, every pimple, every place you forgot to shave, everything is revealed in that kind of light. And that really is kind of what worship is because when we gather for worship, we are confronted by a God who makes us confront ourselves to become transparent and authentic and honest with who we are and who we are not and who we might be becoming. But on Ash Wednesday, it's even taken to a higher degree. It's even all of that but more because we, we're mindful on Ash Wednesday about the cross that's coming in, in just a matter of weeks. So in many ways, what we do on an Ash Wednesday service is we come to fix our eyes on the cross and to consider everything that was provided for our wholeness and our health and our salvation and our eternity. We see on the cross, we fix our eyes on everything that he laid down so that we might rise up. And, and with a mirror fixed on it, it's as if we're forced to confront the person that we see in the mirror because he is the reason and she is the reason he died. Knowing that everything that he makes us think of that is imperfect in us ought to still be crucified. And we come and we fix our, guy, our, our gaze upon Christ and the crucified one, but like looking in a mirror, we, we become aware of the parts of us that still need to be crucified. And we, we know what they are, but we do so well at hiding them. So we look at the cross and we fix our eyes upon the pride, upon the self-deceit, upon the envy we carry around, upon the greed that is in our bones. We, we look at the cross and like looking in a mirror, we see the fear that seems to cripple us. We see appetites that we have 
appetites that are out of control, appetites for things, for more, for more, for more pleasure, for more satisfaction, for more stuff, for more dopamine rushes and whatever it takes to get us there, appetites. We look at the cross and we see in our own reflection all the control issues that get us in trouble. We look at the cross and we are reminded of all the ways that we don't show up, how we remain silent at injustices. We look at the cross and we see reflected back anger that sometimes burns in our bones and destroys all of our relationships. But it's not just that we see the cross and are reminded of all the stuff that's wrong, that's imperfect, that's broken in us. But looking at the cross, we learn to see ourselves through the eyes of the crucified one. Seeing ourselves through the eyes of his compassion and his mercy and his grace and his forgiveness means that we have to borrow his eyes to actually see ourselves rightly. Because if left to our, our own devices, we will only see what's looking back at us in the mirror. And at times it will cripple us because we know how much is missing in here and how much is broken up here. But if we can recognize that everything that I am is informed and transformed by everything he is, everything that I am is informed and transformed by everything that he is. So for just a minute, I want to talk to you about the most important question that you will ever answer. What's the most important question that you will ever answer? It was actually asked by Jesus himself, and we read about it in the 16th chapter of Matthew. Listen to this amazing story. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do, you, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And there it is. That's it. That is the most important question you will ever answer. Because if who I am is informed and transformed by who he is, then my answer to that question is everything. Then it matters who I say that he is. So Peter, Simon, answered. He said, you are the Christ the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, Petra, the rock. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. 
Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. This is a powerful moment. It's almost a mirroring moment. Because he asked the question, who who do people say that I am? And they gave all kinds of answers. But who do you say that I am? And Peter gave an answer. So Peter responds, this is who you are. You are the Christ. You, You are the one anointed by God. You are the one sent by God. You are the mystical presence of the divine from the beginning. You are the thing that preceded everything. You are the cosmic blueprint of humankind. You are the Christ. You're everything. And having given that answer to Jesus, Jesus then holds up a mirror and says, you have answered rightly. So now let me, because you have identified who I am to you, now let me tell you who you are. You are the rock. You see me as the Christ and you are right. But if I'm the Christ, it means I see you and I know you. I know what I had in mind when I thought you into existence. I know you, Peter, and you are the rock. See, everything that I am is informed and transformed by everything that he is. So the answer to the question, who do you say that he is, is everything. Put another way, when asked the question, who do you say I am? When asked the question by Jesus, our response determines our reflection. What we say about him and what we believe about him will determine what is reflected back and who we actually end up becoming. G.K. Beale wrote this book called uh, We Become What We Worship. Know what he said? He said, what people revere, they resemble either for their ruin or their restoration. What people revere, they resemble. And that's true, isn't it? I mean, if I revere more than anything else, money and material goods and and the acquisition of stuff, it will become clear to everybody who looks at my life what is most important to me. If if what I revere most is, is some kind of hidden pattern or secret sin in time that gets revealed and people around you see what it is that you have revered most your entire life. And the same, it works the same with Christ. It works the same with Christ. If we revere him, if we fix our gaze upon him, if he is the recipient of our mind's attention and our heart's affection, and we are fixed upon him, then the more we lean into him, the more we focus our energy and our life and our love toward him, the more we gradually begin to take on the character of the one we revere. That's just how it happens. There's this amazing story that's told. So I can... In the second Corinthians, Paul, the apostle, is writing and he's telling this story. And, and he, he makes a reference to an obscure old story in the book of Exodus in the Old Testament where Moses, if you'll remember, was going up and down the mountain of God. 
And he would go up and, and he would be in the presence of God. And because he was in the presence of God, in all of God's radiance and glory, the word is Shekinah, and all of his holiness, he actually began to radiate with the same glory. So Moses began to actually glow with like this divine suntan that he received from being in the presence of the Lord. And he would come down the mountain and it was so overwhelming that they had to actually put a, a veil or a mask over his face so that the, the shine, the radiance on his face wouldn't overwhelm the people. And this would go on and on. He'd go up, he'd radiate in the presence of God. He'd come down, he'd glow so much, they got to cover him up so as to not overwhelm everybody. But then something curious happened. In time, he began to, to put a, a veil, a mask over his face, not because he was shining so radiantly that it was overwhelming, but because it was actually beginning to fade and he was wearing the mask to hide the fact that the, the glory was fading away from him. Yeah, let that marinate a minute. How often we wear masks to hide our imperfections, to hide what is vulnerable about us, to hide all the broken parts so we prop up some some mask that is acceptable to keep you from seeing what is broken in me. So Paul knew that story and he's trying to explain what it's all about to be in the presence of Christ and that when you fix your gaze upon Christ, something changes in you because everything that he is informs and transforms everything that you're meant to be. And this is what he said. Since then we have such a hope, we act with great boldness. Not like Moses, who put a veil over his face to keep the people of Israel from gazing at the end of his glory that was being set aside, but their minds were hardened. Indeed, to this very day, when they hear the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil is still there, since only in Christ is it set aside. Indeed, to this very day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their minds, but when one turns to the Lord... The veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And all of us, track with me here, all of us with unveiled faces, seeing the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, the Spirit. Do you realize the power of what we just read, that when we fix our gaze upon him, in all of our imperfection, Christ removes the veil that hides all the broken parts of us. And the more we gaze upon him and give him our devotion and our love and our reverence and our life, then degree by degree, something powerful happens. We change. And the parts of us, when we look in the mirror that we're ashamed of, the parts of us that cripple us with shame and guilt and doubt, all those parts that we know are unchristly, they begin to melt away until Christ sees you. And over time, when Christ looks at you, it's as if Christ is looking in a mirror. Could anything be more beautiful than that. 
maybe one thing. See, what we do with that question is everything. Who do you say that I am? If he is the Christ, he knows you. He knows what is behind the veil. There's no secret that you can keep from God. And the beauty is in removing that veil, our truest salvation, our truest redemption and transformation becomes possible. Now there's one thing more I've got to tell you. Do you remember how the story began a minute ago? I began to read that story where Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, who do, who do people say that the, what? That the son of man is. Well, we know that the son of man title is his favorite title. It's what he referred to himself most as. He knows that that is the title he prefers. Not son of God, not Messiah, not king of kings, not lord of lords, not rose of Sharon, not bright and morning star, not lily of the valley, not all the ones that are worthy to call him, but his the son of man, which came actually from an obscure verse in the book of Daniel in the Hebrew Bible. And it means this, the son of humankind, the, the representation of everybody. Another way to put it is the truly human one. He is the one who symbolizes and represents all of us, the son of humanity. Now, what's interesting to me is that in Hebrew, you know that the word for man or human is Adam, as in the first two chapters of the book of Genesis. Adam, 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 the first man, the first person. But Adam, we're told in that beautiful poem at the beginning of our Bible, Adam was created out of the Adama, which is Hebrew word for mud, dirt, Dust, dust. The argument can be made that Jesus' favorite title for himself was son of the dust, which means he is from the same stuff you are from. But if he is the Christ, then he's the one who returned dignity to the dust. He returned dignity to our dust. So when God looks at you, God sees something different than what I see when I look at me or what you see when you look at you. God doesn't see dirt. And I know what it feels like to have broken things and failed at things and fallen on my face and feel like dirt. But you need somebody to say to you that when God sees you, God doesn't see dirt. God only sees the dignity of the dust the divine died to deliver. Yes. You hear what I'm saying? Yes. He only sees because of the Christ, the dignity of the dust the divine died to deliver. And that means something on a night like this. Yes. Because in just a moment, we're going to take the dust and, and we're going to place the mark of the cross on, on your forehead. And, and, and you're going to hear, we, we're going to say words like, remember that we are dust and to dust we shall return. But most of the time when we hear those words, it just sounds like a morbid reminder that we're all going to die. And we kind of are. But hear it now with new ears. Remember we are 
dust. And to dust, to the son of dust, to the one who has brought dignity back to the dust, we shall return. That is good news. That is good news. And that is why we gather to do what we're doing tonight. You are not dirt. The reason we put the dust in the form of a cross is because that is our hope. The cross changes everything. It changes everything about what we think about ourselves, but it reveals mostly what God thinks about us. It's been said that Christ didn't come to change, Christ didn't die to change God's mind about humanity. Christ died to change humanity's mind about God. It is a good God, a loving God who wants us well, whole, redeemed.